Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Today, we are talking about something Whitney and I, as of late, are not getting enough of, (laughs) thanks to our beautiful children, and that's sleep. As mothers, co-founders, co-CEOs, we definitely don't get as much sleep as we should, which is why we are particularly excited to be sitting down with clinical psychologist Dr. Shelby Harris to discuss what makes a good night's sleep and how we can all get deeper sleep. Dr. Shelby specializes in behavioral sleep medicine and primarily focuses on sleep, anxiety, and depression. She is also the author of The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia, Get a Good Night's Sleep Without Relying on Medication, and also frequently writes for the New York Times. We've partnered with her as part of our fall program, Sleeping with Sakara, and are excited to share all of her incredible knowledge with you all today. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Shelby Harris. Well, hi, Dr. Shelby. We're so excited to have you on the podcast and also as part of our Sleep with Sakara campaign and challenge we have going on right now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of it. I'm really excited. You know, you are talking to uh, two moms with two young kids, so we are very excited as we talk about sleep (laughs) and what to do if you're not getting any. Uh Well, the first question we always like to start off every podcast with is, What is your mission? What are you doing here on earth? And what is your ultimate gift that you believe you're giving? I love that question. You know, I always knew that I wanted to go into psychology and work with patients. And when I first started, I was just out of nowhere put on a research study before I even went to graduate school. And it was a research study working with people who had addictions. And it was looking at treating people's sleep issues, their insomnia, when they were in recovery for early addiction or early recovery for addiction problems. And we saw that if we treated their sleep problems, it actually helped to lower addiction rates and relapse rates. And I saw that by helping people sleep early on, it makes such an impact in so many areas of people's lives that I said, if it helps with addiction, what else could it impact? And from there on in, I just really started to research it more and went to graduate school. And it's just been this theme that I've seen throughout my career of when you help people sleep better, they feel better, their mood's better. It helps so many different areas, medically, psychiatrically, spiritually in their life that it's wonderful to see. And That leads me to the question of like, how do you define good sleep? Because I've heard so many different theories, like, you know, you should nap every like two hours and then only sleep like three hours a night. Like there's just so many different things. So how do you define, I guess, clinically, especially good sleep? Right. I think for us, it's really about when it becomes a problem for you. So if it's working for you and you feel well-rested and refreshed throughout most of your day, you're fine. I work mostly with insomnia patients or people who have sleep apnea who snore and choke and gasp a lot in their night. 
So if you have trouble falling asleep, if you're up for a long time in the middle of the night, you wake up too early and it creates a problem for you, you're frustrated or you're tired or you sleep throughout the night, but you don't feel like it's refreshing and that you have to nap. You can't get through the day without multiple naps. Then it's definitely something that you'd want to talk to someone about or or see if there's things that you can do to optimize your sleep. What about if you feel like you get through the day with just four hours of sleep at night, but then you're drinking a lot of caffeine throughout the day. I feel like that's a lot of uh, people I know in New York City where they're like, oh, I, I don't need much sleep at night, but then they're having six espressos throughout the day. Right. If you can't get through your day without one or two cups of coffee, then we've got to have a talk. And and it's interesting. People all, always say, well, I, I don't know what my sleep need is. I don't know what my sleep need. And I have an 11-year-old and a 5-year-old, so I get it. It's hard with little kids. But if there's ever a time when you can take five, six days off, it's ideal to just go to bed at like kind of your natural bedtime rhythm time without alcohol, just go to bed naturally, and then just sleep without an alarm in the morning. And after about days three, four, just kind of average four, five, and six together because you're paying back sleep debt for maybe the first or second day, then days four, five, six, see what time you naturally wake up and see how what the average total sleep time is you're getting that's probably closer to your actual real sleep need. Wow. And okay, so let's go back for a second. You just said replenishing our sleep debt. Yes. So you can actually make up for lost sleep. And like if Danielle and I are missing out on a lot of sleep right now, running a business, small children, how long would it take for us to make up that sleep debt? Awesome question. So sleep debt is the idea of, let's say you're someone who's an eight hour a night person. And if you need eight hours a night, seven nights a week, eight, 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 every single night. Now, if you're someone who five nights out of the week, you're only getting, let's say, six hours because you're working, you're burning the candle at both ends, whatever it is, that's two, four, six, eight, ten hours that you're missing in the middle of the week for what you actually need. So it's possible to make it up a little bit. It's almost like a, a debt that you're taking out and you're trying to repay on the weekends, but it's really hard to get an extra 10 hours of sleep on the weekend. If you're someone who misses one night, two nights here and there, and you're getting a little less, okay, sleep in a little bit on the weekend if it doesn't mess up your Sunday or Monday night, that's fine. But for most people who are really getting a lot less consistently, that's when we say it's really impossible to make it up on the weekend because it builds up more and more over time. So it literally is... For every hour of sleep that you're missing out on throughout the week, that's the hour that you want to make up. It's not like, oh, uh, 10 minutes will make up for every hour you miss. It's a crude kind of estimation, and it's hard because everyone's a little different. But the easiest way to think about it, just from a debt kind of perspective, is for most people, they're not getting enough that they're not going to be able to make it up at all in the middle of the week. But if you miss an hour or two here and there... You can sleep in a little bit on the weekends, but that's always a fine line because then it sets off this problem for some people. We call it social jet lag, where you sleep in on Saturday and Sunday, and then you're not up enough hours come Sunday to actually be sleepy enough to go to bed Sunday night to get up in the morning on Monday. So then you start the whole sleepless pattern again on Sunday night, Monday. Mm. What causes that variability that you're speaking to? Like, why do I need eight hours and somebody else needs six hours? They don't fully know. It could just be, it's a lot of it's biological. Some of it's family related, family history. They really don't fully know. Some people just need a little bit more. Some need a little less. The range for the majority of the population is between six and nine hours. So that's something that I always try to stress with my patients is that a lot of people say this, like, I heard I have to get eight hours. I have to get hours. And they're only getting seven, but they're fine. 
Like it doesn't mean that you have to now start taking medication to sleep, right? If you feel well rested and refreshed with six and a half and seven, and you're fine to go about your day, you just get a little less than the average person, but it's still within normal limits. And do men and women need different amounts of sleep? I feel like my husband, especially after 40, is able to sleep fewer hours a night and it adds up for me. Not really. Women actually need deeper sleep. They get deeper sleep. The quality of sleep changes a little bit. Women typically start to have more sleep issues than men when midlife starts to happen. That just happens. But it's not usually that men need less sleep. It's just they sometimes start to have more sleep disorders. Usually men just find that they can fall asleep and stay asleep at any point. It's easier for them, actually. That's more of the difference than men versus women. Because hormonal issues, perimenopause, menopause really starts to factor in for women so that they start to get less than men usually. Can we dig into that a little bit more? Let's talk about what happens at different stages throughout a woman's life in particular, because you do like to focus on women's health and women's sleep. And what happens to our bodies hormonally that affects our sleep? So what we see is up until adolescence, until puberty happens, we see that boys and girls have the exact same sleep needs, their sleep's all the same. And then once adolescence starts to happen and girls start to menstruate, that's when sleep starts to become a little bit destabilized for some some women. And what we start to see is there's this pattern of right before menstruation, there's a big drop in hormones, so an estrogen drop, big drop in hormones. And usually those five-ish days before uh, menstruation is when insomnia tends to happen. So we talk about like PMS, PMDD, like some of these symptoms that people will talk about. That's often insomnia can happen a lot during that time. So I encourage people, if you start to have like a few days here and there, but you don't notice any rhyme or reason to it, I encourage people to track it. There are great apps that you can do there. Just track it along with your menstrual cycle, because sometimes that can be very enlightening and that can lead to a discussion with your gynecologist if there's a hormonal component. So that's the first thing. And then we see when pregnancy happens, sleep goes all over the place, right? So I just saw earlier today, Mm -hmm. I saw a woman who's in her first trimester and she's like sleeping all the time. She's super sleepy during the day, which is common, but at night you're still sleepy, but you wake up a lot to urinate or you have vivid dreams. Second trimester tends to be more of a normal sleep pattern. And then third trimester, all bets are off. Like I remember when I had both my kids, I was just huge, uncomfortable, heartburn, use the bathroom constantly. You just can't get comfortable. And then all the recommendations to sleep on your side and not sleep in certain positions. It's just a lot of anxiety. And then there's also a lot of dreams that happen about what it's going to be like when you have the baby. A lot of stress dreams that I think are almost preparing you for childbirth happening. And then the baby comes, right? And so sleep's thrown off again. So we're trying to adjust to breastfeeding, to feeding in general, to just a new schedule and getting a baby on some sort of a schedule. And for a lot of women, and a lot of the women that I work with, they'll say, my kids started sleeping well, and I continue to have sleep problems from there on in, because they just got almost hardwired to always have an ear out, to be listening, to just always like wait for some other shoe to drop. And their brain is just going a million miles a minute. So that can happen. And then for some people, it stabilizes and it's fine. And then the other really big area in life that we see a lot of sleep problems happen is during perimenopause. So a lot of people will say menopause, but perimenopause is really that transition time that can last five years or so on average, sometimes longer for some women, sometimes a little shorter. And that's the transition from having a regular menstrual cycle when it starts to become very irregular into menopause, which is the cessation of having menstruation for at least a year. And that's when you're having hot flashes, you're having night sweats, 
racing mind, extreme fatigue. Sometimes it can be mood swings. It really varies for different women. And sleep really is one of the first things that becomes very sacrificed during that time. So a lot of women will wake up in the middle of the night just una- with a racing mind and unable to go back to sleep. So it's a big area of concern that we're starting to focus more on in the field. Is it mostly hormonal? What else goes into the quality of our sleep? Yeah, that was going to be my question. Like, how are we then, how does our lifestyle and choices, you know, affect our quality of sleep? Because sometimes I swear a glass of wine really does help me. Yeah. I have a great slide that I use in some of my talks that shows that like some of it's hormonal for some women. And it's like a, it's almost like a triple Venn diagram, right? So some of it's hormonal, some of it's biological or just it, I mean, hormonal social factors, right? And then some of it can be also medical or psychiatric factors, right? So it could be hormonal, it could be stress, work stress. You think about women now, they have more responsibilities, right? You said you're running a business and you have little kids. Like there's just more that's on us now more than ever, and especially with the pandemic, like so much more is put on us. And then, so it's a lot of it can also be stress reduction, right? Meditation, relaxation exercises, ways to be able to quiet your brain. The hormone's a piece of it for some women, but it's also about what you're doing in bed, things ruminating, worrying excessively. And then for other people, it could also be medical issues, right? So what we see a lot in some women is they might have sleep apnea, which is super common. They might have gained some weight during the pandemic. They might be snoring, choking, gasping. And that's stuff that can also impact the quality of your sleep, especially when we see women that are starting in their 40s that are starting to often go through perimenopause. We start to see rates of snoring and choking and gasping and sleep apnea go up that a lot of people just ignore and they don't think anything about or they're too embarrassed to get it evaluated. So that can impact your sleep. So there's a lot of different things and it doesn't just have to be hormones, but like you're asking, you know, alcohol, for some people find it helps. For a lot of people, it might help put you to sleep, but it might worsen your snoring or worsen the quality of your sleep if you're someone who has awakening. So there's a lot of different pieces and sleep hygiene rules that we give are a great place to start. But if it's not enough, then there's definitely ways that we can tailor it for the individual person. I want to break up, like starting with, the hormonal piece. If you're somebody that, I mean, it feels almost a little bit overwhelming, like hormones, lifestyle, medical, all these things, like where do I start? Who do I see for all of these different things? So for hormonal, if I wanted to get my hormones checked, which type of doctor am I going to? What am I asking for? You know, if I think that something is off with my sleep. Well, first start by talking with your gynecologist about it. And sometimes even getting your hormones checked isn't always ideal because you could be getting them checked at a time when there isn't any sort of spike or drop. So it might actually be misleading. And I think there are some wonderful books out there on perimenopause and menopause now, like Jen Gunter, The uh, Menopause Manifesto just came out, which is fantastic. I mean, just perimenopause has not been discussed much in our society. And I would think, I think over the past like two or three years, even since I wrote my book, it's like just exploded. I'm so glad that people are talking about it. But what you were asked about, like where to go for treatment, if you're someone who has insomnia, right? And you've tried the basic sleep hygiene things, you've limited alcohol, you're not watching screens before bedtime. Like I said, these are all things that are great places to start. One thing that's excellent is something called CBT for insomnia. And that actually is being shown to help with people who have insomnia related to any of those areas. So it helps with some people who have hormonal issues of insomnia or stress issues or any other medical issues or any or all three. 
And what CBT for insomnia is, is someone like myself, they're usually psychologists or specialists who have training in this kind of behavioral sleep medicine. And what we do is we tailor sleep hygiene, but we also tailor your bedtime, your wake time. Some people are in bed and waking up at the wrong times for what their body's sleep need is. So we change that sort of stuff. We change what they're doing in their bed. We change what they're doing out of bed before bedtime. So it's a very short-term treatment, but it actually can help in all those different areas. And we usually tell people to go to the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, and you can get a practitioner there. And if that's not enough, then you can go talk to your gynecologist, and that might be the next place to start if you want to go down the hormone route. And let's talk about specifically nutrition. And I want to dig into all the sleep hygiene because you have lots of amazing tips on what sleep hygiene means. But within the lens of strictly nutrition, what do you think is good? And it's so interesting, right, to think about your sleep at lunchtime, you know, because I think typically people think their day is based on their sleep versus their sleep is based on their day. And Mm. so really making sure like it's all interconnected. Who doesn't matter the chicken or the egg. It's just like fix both ends of it. So what are your tips around nutrition and good sleep hygiene? I always say, it's funny you're talking about like, which is starting, which I always say that the nighttime begins with the morning. So I am a huge fan of getting up at around the same time every single day. Consistency Mm. is number one. And what comes with consistency, at least for me, is having breakfast at the same time every day. I find breakfast, a big glass of water with some lemon in it for me is very alerting. So if you're someone that that works for, that's great. That helps to set your body clock and it helps to awaken you. So you want to think about things that are alerting and keep you awake, but not too full, right? You want your bigger meals earlier in the day than the heaviest things at night because that can influence your sleep. So bigger meal, breakfast, or even lunch, and then lighter in the evening, and then a snack Within, you can say like about an hour of bed, but usually really try to think about it consistency earlier in the day and then have your last meal within, I would say like cut it off within three hours of bed. And then if you want a little snack, sometimes people wake up and they're actually hungry or they have a little bit of low blood sugar issues. So a little snack that's kind of a little bit higher in some fat, protein, and a little bit of complex carbs is usually very beneficial to help you fall asleep and stay asleep. So that's where I start. And then I think about what foods contain, right? So I try to think about, especially for that later half, last half of the day, you want to think about foods that tend to be a little bit more um, calming and not so heavy. So things that are more um, magnesium rich, magnesium is very calming for the body. So almonds, cashews, pumpkin seeds, avocado, oats, bananas, things like that, carrots, raisins, those are all great for calming. And a lot of people have that like as some some sort of like an early bedtime kind of snack. And then also things that are maybe for dinner, like greens, nuts, seeds, whole grains. Those are all very magnesium. And some of them have melatonin in them too, which is sleep enhancing. So you want to think about all those things as helping to set up your evening, but not being too heavy, if that makes sense. That makes sense. And I've also personally experienced some level of insomnia during pregnancy and I think it was low blood sugar throughout the night because I was actually nauseous for 20 weeks instead of just the first trimester. And so, and it was worse at night. So then I wouldn't really be eating much at all and certainly not good things (laughs) because when you're that nauseous, you only crave carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that balancing 
blood sugar is, you know, something we talk about a lot at Sakara, but I think people don't really necessarily think that you also have to balance your blood sugar while you're sleeping by making good choices during the day. 100%. And I'm a big fan. I love oatmeal. So like a lot of people will think about like oatmeal as, you know, breakfast kind of food. I sometimes eat it a small bowl of oatmeal at like for dessert after dinner. And I just put a little bit of like pumpkin seeds in it, maybe a tiny touch of cinnamon and maple syrup if I want. And that for me is very um, filling, but it's also, it helps because it is somewhat sleep inducing. So I'm just a big fan of all that stuff. And if you're someone who exercises, you really, you might be waking up even more with low blood sugar. So you got to be careful and really try to fuel yourself properly, but not heavily before bed. And what are some of the other things that you suggest as a sleep hygiene? Like what is good sleep hygiene? We had Ariana Huffington on the podcast a long time ago in season one, and she talks about sleep hygiene, putting your phone away. Mm-hmm. But if you could speak to, yeah, some of the sleep hygiene you talk about and some of the science behind it. Yeah. So sleep hygiene, I always think about it. One of my colleagues, I uh, heard her once talk about it as almost like dental hygiene. So you want to brush your teeth and floss every day because it helps to prevent a cavity. Or if you get a cavity, it might not be as bad because you're helping overall with everything else that you're doing. So sleep hygiene is very similar, right? If you don't have a severe sleep problem, Practicing good sleep hygiene will help keep it at bay or keep it from getting worse. But the one caveat is if you've tried sleep hygiene or you have really bad insomnia or snoring, like sleep hygiene alone is usually not the cure for it. So a lot of people are like, I tried everything. There's no point in going to a sleep doctor. That's not true. You should still go to a sleep doctor because there's other things that we can do that don't always require medication either. So, but sleep hygiene in general, I always think of it, there's so many things that you can do, but one of the first things that I always stress is consistency. So we were talking about it a little bit earlier, but consistency is really key for our body clock. So we have this 24-hour circadian, circa means about, DN a day. So we have this about 24-hour body clock that's built into us. And we think that with modern technology and alarm clocks and phones, we can just like kind of say, today's my weekend clock. Today is my, you know, this is now my weekday clock. And we can just kind of switch it on and off. And the reality is you can't fake your body's clock. You can't just abruptly change it. And it's hard when you have kids and you're busy, but if you can try and be as consistent as possible, especially with the wake time, seven days a week, it really does help to help you fall asleep faster and stay asleep more consistently. Mm-hmm. So consistency with that. Now, it doesn't have to be perfection, but the more days you can do it, the better. And I really, when I get patients to really keep the same wake time every single day, it makes a huge impact for a lot of people. Now, the next thing is you think about consistent wake time, and it's about light. So a lot of people are, especially since the pandemic had started, a lot of people were inside. They weren't opening their shades. They were like in apartments. It was just dark. So getting movement, getting light. Light is really activating to help set your wake time, but it also helps to set your bedtime. So be thoughtful about how you use light. Do you sleep with your window shades closed or open? I have them completely shut. Completely shut. And so you open them when you wake up in the morning then? Exactly. So my husband sometimes sleeps a little bit later than me. So what I tend to do is I get up and I go into, I have a bathroom. I live, I have like a lot of woods and I have really big windows in my bathroom. I actually do, for me, I get up every morning and I do a two to three minute meditation with the windows just completely shades up and I just get as much light as I can. And I just sit and I stare outside and I observe and describe what I see outside every single morning. I've been doing it for 15 years now, probably. And that's how I get light. And then I usually go downstairs into the basement and I run, but I have my treadmill because I'm lucky enough, I have it right in front of a window. So I'm getting as much light as I can, or I try to run outside. But light in the morning is key. 
What time are you waking up? Are you getting up consistently at the same time? I am obnoxiously consistent, but it's just because I'm also, my body is just so used to it. So I get up about 5.45 to 6 a.m. every single day. Pre-pandemic, I was actually even earlier because I used to go to a, a gym to go work out, but I've since kind of transitioned it. And a lot of people actually started going to bed later and sleeping later since the pandemic, which is interesting. Mm. But I'm so consistent with it about 5.45 to 6 every single day and even on the weekends. So I have a group that I run with on Saturdays and some Sundays. And I do that. Initially, I started doing that because it kept me consistent. So they run about the same time. So I'm still getting up at the same time, even on the weekends. To sleep in an extra hour or so is not the end of the world on the weekend if you don't have sleep problems. But if you're someone who really does struggle, consistency will be your friend and light in the morning. And then, like I said, thinking about light judiciously. So light in the morning. And if you don't have any access to light, they're really great. Even if it's a cloudy day, still open up all the windows. There are like light boxes, dawn simulators. There's really great alarm clocks. Like my kids have alarm clocks, the hatch alarm that like makes it look like the sun's coming up in different colors and they wake up to those every day. So you can make it fun too. I was going to say, like, are you very strict with your kids on sleep hygiene and bedtimes? And if so, like how? (laughs) I'm strict to a point. It's interesting. It's like, I'm strict-ish, right? So like, I am not perfect every day. There are days I get sucked into watching TV and I have to like say, stop it. You can't do this after two days of doing it. Mm -hmm. With my kids, you also have to think about their mental health too, right? If they're going to go out and they're going to go to a barbecue late at night, once in a while, it's okay. With naps, I was pretty strict about naps for a long time. But if there were exceptions, if we were going to go visit family, if we were going to do things, I was pretty strict about like doing naps at certain times because I knew it would help them sleep better at night for us, at least with my kids. I like try to limit screens within at least a half hour of bed. I try to like, they've just learned because it's just something we've done since birth. My daughter, my five-year-old goes in her room and colors and with that hatch alarm on and like plays relaxing music. And she thinks it's the cutest thing. And then we read a book and go to bed. We don't make a big deal out of it. It's just how we do it. But it's not that way every single night at all. It's just more consistency than perfection. And if you get down on yourself about not being perfect about it, it's not going to help you. And so we all know that we need good sleep. We know that it's important to the quality of our waking hours. What happens while we sleep? Why is it so important? So many things happen while you sleep. There's different stages of sleep that happen throughout the night. So when you go to sleep at night, you go into a really deep stage of sleep, and then you kind of cycle between this deep stage three to this lighter sleep and then REM sleep, and then you have an awakening. And you actually have that cycle about five to seven times a night. And you awaken after every single cycle. It's just most people don't know that they awaken. So you have these cycles. And when you're in the deeper sleep, that's when your body, it's almost like your brain is completely turned off and your body is doing all its restorative stuff. So any repairing of blood vessels, heart, lungs, your brain is like neurons are restoring themselves. That's when it's really physically restorative, that type of sleep. That's why people always talk about, I want that deep, deep sleep. That's important. Now, when you go and you cycle through and you go into that like kind of REM sleep that happens, that I always call it like your brain's filing cabinet, basically. The simple way of thinking about it is that's when your emotional processing and your cognitive processing, that's when the brain's actually really turned on. And as a protective mechanism, your body's turned off. So your brain is turned on. That's when we tend to dream the most. You can dream in other stages, but you're dreaming, you're thinking, your filing cabinet's like thinking about all the things you did during the day. And it's trying to figure out what do I need to shred and what do I need to share? So it's really important for body function, for cardiovascular function, for everything. All sleep, it helps with body and mind, all that stuff in all the different cycles. 
It's no wonder that you say every disease in modern society, like diabetes, cognition, cardiovascular disease, suicide, et cetera, has strong links to insufficient sleep. 100%. Exactly. Exactly. If you're not sleeping, you're not actually really processing things well and your mood and your frontal lobe and your judgment and everything is really um, an issue. And what can we do for those of us that don't have the option of getting ideal sleep? What are some of the things that you can do that help make up for some of the physiological effects of not getting a good night's sleep? And I think that's a great point, right? So it's, it's doing the best you can with what you have. So if you have a, a tough schedule or you can't, you just can't get it all at night, that's where sleep hygiene really comes into play, especially. So it's optimize the sleep that you can get, right? So try to make it quiet, dark, cool, comfortable in your room. So make sure that you're not, if you can, there's nothing physically or noise or, or whatever that might awaken you, any sort of sleep disruptors. So that's really important. I mean, even with people who can get enough sleep, screens, there's a little bit of a debate, but screens somewhat impact your melatonin production and might make it harder for you to fall asleep or get quality sleep. So we say- Are you wearing blue light blockers right now? Or are those real glasses? These are real glasses, but they have a blue filter in them. Yeah. They do. So you do it because you think it really has a correlation or why not? Now it's more just eye fatigue after being going onto screens and Zoom for so much more. I was just noticing I had more eye fatigue. But I tend to limit the screens an hour before bed. But if you really have to be on a screen for some reason, and that happens to me too, then you can get blue light blockers. They're iffy as to whether or not they actually help or not, but they're better than nothing. And if you're on a laptop, there's something called F.LUX, which is really useful. And you can download that program and that kind of gives it a warm hue. And that's actually been researched really well to block a lot of the blue light and really help for some people. Now, there's actually some research that suggests that the blue light before bed is not actually as much of a problem I still think it's a problem because it does reduce melatonin for some people, but I think it also, it's like, what are you looking at before you go into bed at night, right? Are you looking at stuff that's going to make you stress? That's going to make you active. It's going to activate your brain. So even if you don't have a lot of sleep, try to do things, whatever you can, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to at least quiet, calm, relax, quiet your brain down so you can get the most out of whatever sleep you're going to get. And then um, one other thing or two other things like alcohol, caffeine, you want all that earlier in the day because that can impact the quality of the sleep. You might have trouble falling asleep or have trouble with quality of sleep from alcohol and caffeine. And the same thing with like big meals. So you want to limit your meals to earlier, have exercise earlier in the evening, earlier in the day, because all of that will help deepen the sleep that you get. Yeah. I noticed that post-pregnancy, I respond differently to exercise later in the day mm-hmm. where before I could go work out after work and do whatever else go you know eat drink dancing and yep. it wouldn't affect my sleep and now I notice that if I work out too close to bedtime I feel it in my body while I'm lying in bed yeah that it's almost like it makes me uncomfortable in my bed that my muscles still remain tense instead yeah. of being relaxed into the bed 100% i feel the exact same way it's like your nervous system is so like on when you're a mother that yeah. you need to do really calming things like even my exercise in general has changed from you know more intense dance cardio, et cetera, to like mat Pilates (laughs) where you're like lying on your back and just, you know, isolating muscles, et cetera. 
um, because I find that's so much better for my nervous system. I describe it a lot for some people as being tired, but wired. So it's like you just get in bed, you have no energy, but you just physically can't bring the sleepiness on. And that's why exercise, we actually recommend it for some people. I just, in my schedule, I can't do it, right? For some people, if you do it four to six hours before you want to go to bed, it can help. But that's not always possible. And I know I just can't do it. So I exercise in the morning. And you know what? It helps me. It's fine. And then I'm a big fan of meditation and to use meditation in the any time of day and to have a routine practice, not necessarily to like fall asleep to it. If you want to, fine. But I'm a fan of using it earlier in the day so that, or even in like your wind down routine so that when you go to bed at night, if you notice your brain is doing this, to be able to just let it go because you've meditated. Your brain is essentially stronger for meditation that you can just say, I see you. Just going to let it go and focus on my breathing in bed. So a daily meditation practice is really useful for that stuff too. And Danielle, do you have a wind down practice? What do you do at night to go to sleep? Other than wine. <laughs> a wine um, down? Practice? Wine down. You know, actually, I have found that wine doesn't do great things for me late at night. You know, sometimes it does really help me relax when I get home. But I find really putting away work, which I didn't do for the longest time. And actually, my kids, having kids really helped me because now the minute I get home, I actually am really sensitive. I don't come home on the phone I don't, you know, I don't want them, if, if I have to work at home, I let them know I'm working, but I don't like to like come home after a work day and like be on the phone. So yeah, like my, my wind down is with them. Like we, we have evening dance parties and we actually slow dance. So it's not too, it's like good for the nervous system and have songs that like equal wind down time. It was traditionally designed for my children to help wind them down, but it really works for me too, to just have specific songs that every time you play them, you realize like you're starting to get ready for bed. And both my husband and I, I mean, I guess luckily both of us, because if it were just one of us, it'd be a problem, but we're actually not super great at routines. So having two kids, it was always like, yeah, bedtime just happens when we're tired and we don't really stare at the clock. But as you said, it's like, you do actually fall into routine. It's just that I never put my routine brain on. I just started to really listen and take out all the things that were getting in the way, like my phone, like my glass of wine too late. Not that I don't still have it, but the TV, et cetera. And once you pull those out of the way, and we talk about this a lot at Zakara, it's like you take out the noise and it allows you to listen. And then when you tune in, it's like your body and mind are really telling you what they're craving and you just kind of have to provide it. So yeah, I really enjoy having like a dance party with my kids. If I get them down early enough, I love having like a beauty routine at night because it's definitely not happening in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) So like a facial massage, I use our detox tea and I put it in a boiling pot and do like a facial steam over it. It's really rich in antioxidants. I love that. Yeah. Things that I think just make me feel really grounded and connected end up helping me sleep at night too. And I, I love doing, I actually, I, I put my kids down every night and while I'm putting them down, I do a meditation and that really helps too. Um, yeah, just things that like calm my nervous system. What about you, Wit? What's yours? Well, I've found that Bodhi won't go to sleep unless I'm relaxed. He can feel my energy, even if I'm lying there next to him and putting him to bed. He can feel if my mind is racing or if I'm being quiet and being present with him. So I found that playing music 
like nice, calming music. He really loves Krishnadas. He loves Krishnadas's voice, loves oming that that helps to relax him. Or this is really funny, but my mom discovered that singing the Ants Go Marching song will put him to sleep. So like that was last night was singing the Ants Go Marching one by one. Hurrah. Hurrah. So like, over it's and rhythmic. over. It's rhythmic. And yeah, it's... And it helps him fall asleep? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that song. And each time I sing it, I just make up what the little one stops to do. And so, you know, it it keeps my brain occupied thinking about what, you know, the next one is going to be where, you know, it's like the little one stops to suck his thumb and they all go marching down. And so I change it up what they stop to do. And so I'm thinking about rhyming words and that helps me to be focused and present in that moment and stop my mind from thinking about the hundred million other things going on. And I would say, yeah, that's definitely part of my evening wind down is putting him to sleep. If I put him to bed and then I'm up and my mind is racing again and I need to wind down, I will either put on a sleep meditation, maybe on insight timer, or I will read the daily exercise in the Course of Miracles workbook in the back of the book. And those are just really short, one or two pages. And, you know, it's not the lightest writing. It's a little bit dense and you have to read it and think about it. And it just all, it's hard for me to get through one exercise because just reading it will put me right to sleep. So those are some of the things that I like to do. But I definitely find that if I take the time to do a wind down practice like that, then I'm much more ready to go to sleep and relax into sleep than if I don't. I'm a big fan of making a demarcation between day and night because nowadays there is no demarcation. And if you can make some sort of a routine like you're doing, and it doesn't have to be the same thing, but some similar routine, your brain starts to learn that nighttime is coming. And it starts to really, the more you do it, it starts to produce melatonin. It starts to actually really naturally wind your body down without having to put much thought into it. And the more you're going, 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 good luck doing it if you don't make that demarcation. Mm-hmm. How does melatonin work in the body? So it's made by your brain's pineal gland. And what happens is it comes out, usually rough proximate is about two hours before bedtime, before your natural bedtime. So the idea is that when the sun goes down, your brain starts to make melatonin and we call it the hormone of darkness because it doesn't like light, which is why that whole idea of the screens is a bad idea for people because it makes your brain's melatonin. It suppresses the levels for a lot of people. Melatonin is what makes you sleepy. It's one of the reasons why we get sleepy. And so it stays in your brain. Your brain gets bathed in melatonin throughout the night. And about two hours before you wake up, it starts to, or it begins to stop. And then when it stops, that's when you start to awaken. And that's naturally how it all works. But if we do a lot of light exposure, it's going to not work as well. And so a lot of people take melatonin supplements and stuff, but then they're on their screens and they're doing all the. It works for some people, but not. it's not the cure-all that most people think it is. We use it very judiciously with some people, for sure. This is kind of a a rogue question, Mm -hmm. but, you know, studying sleep as much as you do, has it impacted how you understand like your own connection to spirituality, to dreams? I mean, there's so many indigenous cultures that 
you know, use dream life as information for their waking life. And I feel like in our culture, we just toss it out. And, you know, Whitney and I sometimes will tell each other dreams and be like, isn't that crazy? And it's just like, well, like, I think there's probably information in there. And, you know, we're not really taught to inherently look at our dreams as guides or as important information. So what are your thoughts on, on dream states? I think coming from the sleep medicine field, it's interesting the way we think about dreams and it's not in the kind of interpretation analysis kind of way we think of it. And I, I think of it this way too, is that they have some purpose and it's more of your brain's way of trying to make sense of your day and your life and what's going on. And it's trying to basically figure out what it needs to make files for and what it needs to shred. So it's usually pretty jumbled up but it's usually telling you something. It's what's on your mind. Usually dreams have some connection to whatever's going on in your life in that moment or at some point. And there's a whole reason why, you know, like when I get anxious and I know in my life I'm anxious, I'm going to have that dream about not being able to get in my locker combination in high school. It's always the same thing. So it's a sign that anxiety is going on for me. But a lot of times when I, like we were talking about pregnancy dreams, right? A lot of times I would have pregnancy dreams just about babies. And I remember once I had a dream that I left my child on top of a car because my brain is thinking about all these crazy things that I was worried about that could happen. And I think that it's trying to create files for it. Now, I tend to see people a lot more, not necessarily for dreams. I see people for nightmares. So it's a little bit different. So people come to me with chronic nightmares that they don't want to be having. And so we do imagery practices where we change the endings or we change the narrative of it because they don't want to have them anymore. So it's a little bit of a different, you know, people don't usually go to sleep doctors for dreams. They usually go because they're not sleeping because of stuff. And why is it that even just this morning, I remember that I was dreaming and in the moment that I woke up, I remembered parts of the dream, but now trying to go back and remember what it was, I can't remember. Some people just tend to remember their dreams better than others. Everyone remembers their dreams, but you're tending that last third of the night is when you have the most REM sleep. And that's when you tend to have the most density of dreams. Just some people remember them, some people don't. And then the more distance you get from it, you just forget it. But other people just really hold on to them. We don't fully know why it is that way, but you remember little snippets. Is it a reflection of the quality of your sleep if you're dreaming or not dreaming or remember, don't remember? No. No, not really. I mean, for some people it could be related to like medication. Like some medications will suppress dream states. There are certain like REM suppressant medications, certain like SSRIs, certain antidepressants, certain, yeah, there are some medications that when people go off of them, they notice they're dreaming, like they have lots of nightmares. They have very vivid dreams for a while because their brain was craving those stages of sleep. Some people who have sleep apnea might not have REM sleep as much and they might not dream as much. And then when they get treated for it, they have lots of dreams again because their brain was craving it. So it can be indicative. But in most cases, if you're a good sleeper, some people just remember them more than others. There's no rhyme or reason. Mm-hmm. All right. So I won't feel so bad about not remembering all my dreams. I remember maybe one every three weeks. And I remember them like for the first couple hours, but then there it's so weird. It's like there's a cliff. It's not like they slowly go. It's like all of a sudden I'm like, wait, what? It's just the strangest experience. And that's why some people who really are interested in it, that's where there's value in keeping a dream journal, right? So it can be wonderful if you are interested in really looking into that a lot more. But for other people, you know, it's not abnormal to forget them. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is a good place to ask about light work and... What work and practice can you give all of us to get to sweeter dreams and better sleep? 
So I think most people in our, our world are probably pretty sleep deprived right now. So I encourage people to just think about what's one place where you can try and get five extra minutes for the next week in bed five minutes earlier. Because I think saying to people, go to bed an hour earlier, two hours earlier is unrealistic. But if you can just set as your goal for the next week, going to bed five minutes earlier. So maybe it's not doing one little task, maybe leaving a few dishes or not sweeping the floor, whatever it is that you might normally do that takes five minutes at night. Maybe try to get rid of those five minutes and go to bed five minutes earlier. Or maybe just turn that one show off five minutes earlier and see how that is. And if you get used to that five minutes earlier, then consider another five minutes a week or two down the road. It's all about slow changes and being consistent with it. And if you can do that, you're going to start increasing the total sleep that you get and it'll hopefully help you overall. I love that because I tend to like typically wait until I'm really tired to lay in bed because otherwise I feel like my mind goes off and not so great directions or just not bad directions. Just like I start thinking about work and Sakara. And so I like to head to bed when I'm really tired. But Which is wonderful. That's actually for people who have trouble falling asleep. We recommend that. But if you're mm-hmm. someone who is pretty sleep deprived and just doesn't get enough, I say go to bed a little few minutes earlier. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to get a little more rest. So thank you for that light work. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on to the Sakara Thanks, Dr. Podcast. Shelby. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad that you guys are focusing so much on sleep. I wish people were doing it more, and I'm glad that you guys are embracing it so much because it's so important, and it just makes makes all the difference for a lot of people. Beautiful. Thank you again. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Mm-hmm.